We are continuing our summer series on uh, what I'm just calling uh, values, the seven values that, that uh, we're talking about that, that seem to transcend all cultures, all languages, all history, and as a part of every human being, but they all point to something greater than ourselves. And I'm arguing that it, they all point to the creator God. But they also point, because they are broken, they also point to the problems that we have. Uh, and it just kind of proves, uh, because they are broken, it does prove just how universal they are, just how common they are to every single human being. And we've looked at justice, we've looked at uh, love, and this, this third value is the value of spirituality. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have Rob read that psalm tonight, uh, Psalm 16. It, it pretty well sums up the, the value of spirituality from a Jewish perspective. And it is a, a, a declaration of confidence and joy and contentment in the spirit and his uh, I mean I love that phrase the boundaries have fallen to me on pleasant in pleasant places and I'm not sure what that means but I like the phrase I think it's a kind of a cool phrase it's just kind of the boundaries have fallen in pleasant places and and uh, it's just I love the perspective that he has being secure in in the Savior uh, spirituality might be kind of a strange thing for you to say well I don't really how does that is that a is that a really a, a human value and I would argue that it is, that it is a human value. Uh, when, my, when I grew up, my parents were, uh, talked a lot about Christianity, they talked a lot about faith, they talked a lot about church, but they never talked about spirituality. I don't even think it was part of their vocabulary. Uh, they were, it was all very important to them, they were very all upright people, integrity was important, uh, being, being good was important, the faith was important, and church was important. I remember getting, uh, getting spanked for using the F word before I ever knew what the F word meant. Uh, that was just one of those things. Uh, my my uh, grandparents were very upright. Uh, they, there was uh, uh, no card playing. We could play Texas 42 with dominoes, which is a great game. I have to teach you sometime. Uh, but we play, could play dominoes, Texas 42 with dominoes. We could play uh, board games and stuff, but cards were not allowed. We could not play cards. Uh, dancing was frowned upon by my grandparents. Uh, and of course, the cardinals of all sins is no alcohol. I mean, that was the given. You, you did not have alcohol. I remember my grandfather was so panicked because he had, he had a bad cold. And um, I don't know if it was my aunt who suggested that he take uh, whiskey and honey to help with the cold. And he took it, he did, and he was so afraid that the preacher was going to come by and smell whiskey on his breath after he got that. And, and uh, I've told that story to Sue and says, I bet he had a lot of colds after that. <laughs> Maybe he did. I don't know. I don't know. But the point is that that was, that was uprightness. That was, that was important. The faith, the, the church, the Christianity, that was all very, very important. But the word spirituality was just not even in their vocabulary. And you've got to remember that generation had just come out of World War II, and they were in this transition, and they were trying to keep things, get things back to normal, get things back to you know, stability, and that was what was important in church and right and integrity, and that was, those things were all important. Then the 60s came. And the 60s came with a generation of, of just a rejection of religion in general. It, it really wasn't an organized defiance. It was more like a mood. It was more like that there was something in the air that they wanted to get rid of all of that, that they didn't need this anymore. They didn't need that stuffy old religion uh, that was kind of one of the things that was thrown out the window. They didn't need boring sermons and hopeless music. It was just not part of it. And sort of quote-unquote religion just, you know, was uh, just kind of thrown out the window. 
but spirituality started to make, a, make, a, make its way into our vocabulary. We started talking about spirituality and uh, what does that mean? And the 60s began this sort of secularization of the, of the society, but they would acknowledge some kind of spirituality, whatever that meant, whatever that was. Uh, well, the secularization process in our society is pretty much complete in the Western world. Uh, we feel like we can, you know, we can do fine. We'll run our society without God. That's fine. God, if you're there, you can be up there. That's, that's all good. Uh, if there's something spiritual going on, that's all fine. But we can pretty much run the world, run the world by ourselves. We're okay with that. And so when they think about spirituality, when you look at what spirituality means today, and that famous phrase, I, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, which, you know, I go, what, what is, even does that mean, you know? Well, I think we could really kind of bring it back down to the, the word Gnosticism. And I don't know if ever you've ever heard of that word or not, but Gnosticism was a religion that, that kind of sprang up in the first three centuries and was actually pretty popular in Christian and Jewish circles. And it was a way, it was the, the idea that you had to do some self-discovery. And you may have had this, this inner spark from somebody from the outer space or somebody in the stars or something that, that, that was in you. And you could maybe have a revealer, you know, who would help you self-discover and help you find out who you, you know, your inner self, your true self, which is different from your outer self. And one of the reasons for this, a lot of historians think, is that that was a safe way of being, quote-unquote, spiritual in a time of persecution. Because you could kind of keep this interiorized, you could internalize all this stuff on the inside and be all about self-discovery. But if you were to say that there is a true God and Jesus is actually the Lord of the earth and he's the one in authority, that could get you in trouble. And so some historians think that this was sort of a, it sort of, sort of pushed the Gnosticism. Well, this is basically what we've got today is basically sort of a, a rehabilitated Gnosticism. Uh, that we are in, you know, trying to get our, our inner self, our true self to be expressed, this inner light and everything. And it's not really you know, anything out there. Maybe, maybe there might be some God who will come and take you to another place when you die, but that's really about it. There is no story of redemption. There's no story of God entering history and saving us. Okay? It's all about kind of, kind of self-discovery. And you can just go to the go to Powell's bookstore and go to the section of mind, spirit, and body, or mind, soul, and body, or, or mind, emotion, and body, whatever, and the, the section is huge. Because that's where we are spiritually. That's, that's the process of secularization that we can say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not really religious. And it's very inward focus. It's very me focus of what I can do and what's going to be me and my true expression. It's basically rehabilitated Gnosticism, is all it is. I believe that's the broken value. That's the broken value of spirituality. And Christianity, I think, speaks to that. Christianity speaks to this broken value of, of Gnosticism, rehabilitated Gnosticism. It gives us a vision of something. And really, our choices today are, are really no different than our ancient ancestors' choices. I mean, we can, we can say, we can be Epicureanisms, which is basically if there is a God or gods, they're out there somewhere and they're pretty much uninvolved. Or if there is a God or forces, everything's determined and we just have to stoically get through it, which is called Stoicism. Uh, or you can say that this world here is just basically a virtual reality 
Uh, it's basically shadows, and then one day we'll be taken to the real reality in the heavens. That's Plato. A lot of people think that's Christianity. It's not Christianity. That's Plato. That's Platonism. Or you can believe that there are forces in the, in the natural world, that there are forces in the trees and in the animals, and every, every animal has a spirit, and, and it's got maybe its own little guy. Well, that's just standard paganism. But Christianity does speak to us today. Judaism was different. Judaism said there was one God, one creator God, and he was different than creation, but he was involved in creation. And this one God desired, longed for, to dwell with his people, to dwell with them, to be with them. And not only to dwell with them in their midst, he actually wanted his wisdom and his, his love and his joy to be inside his people. And so he called out Israel, I'm not going to give you the whole story, but he called out Israel, and they built the tabernacle as they, as they left Egypt, and then later the temple in Jerusalem, and there was a center, the Holy of Holies, and this is where God manifested his presence. This is where God dwelt with his people. And this is what Judaism did, that this is different, that God's people would dwell with God in a very, very special way. And then Jesus comes along and says, Yes, but now there's something new. And Christian spirituality says basically this, that this is, I'm just doing the introduction tonight. Next week we will get more in depth in it. I knew this was going to be kind of a shorter kind of service, so we're just going to introduce it tonight, and we'll get a little bit more deeper into it next week. But Jesus comes along, and he says basically that, that spirituality is a life-transforming work of God's Spirit. It's the life-transforming work of God's Spirit inside his people, regardless of what happened in the past. Regardless of what happened in the past in history, regardless of what happened in the past of your history, that this is God's transforming work of the Spirit inside his people. That's, that's Christian spirituality. That's Christian spirituality. The basic question of spirituality in general is about heaven and earth, and where do these two meet? And we may use different words. We, you know, some people may use the word spiritual or material, or some may be used uh, esoteric or concrete, or some may people may, may use uh, words like, like uh, metaphysical and, and, and material, physical, concrete, in whatever it is, something that's spiritual and, and physical and visible. Well, basically, they're talking about heaven and earth. Where do these two meet? Where do these two come together? And that's where we talk about spirituality. Where are these two meeting? And all the religions talk about that. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, they all talk about that in some form or another. That is the basic question. And there is truth in all those things. There is truth in Islam. There's truth in Buddhism. There's truth in Hinduism. There's truth in those things. But to me, the best demonstration of where heaven and earth meet is in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's where heaven and earth meet. And that's where I feel like Christianity speaks to the broken spirituality. That this is where heaven and earth meet. Not in the temple any longer, but in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is God's desire to have his transforming work of Jesus' spirit in us, changing us regardless of the past. To me, that is Christian spirituality. Now, 
If you've been around Shepherd of the Valley for very long, you will hear me say a lot that heaven is not a geography. We're not going to say heaven is in that star or in that space or up there or, or down here or wherever. Heaven is not geography. Heaven is the presence of God. It's not in a specific, specific place. That means it is in the visible world right now. That means we are participating in heaven right now. That means we are in doing heaven right now. And yes, we are waiting for that kingdom to be fulfilled, and we're waiting for that, the consummation of the kingdom for sure. But geography, but heaven is not some geographical location. It is simply the presence of God. And he wants to live in us. Not only in Jesus, but he wants the spirit to live in us. So if that is true, that means what should my life look like? if I'm going to tap into this true Christian spirituality? What is it going to look like in my society, in my family, in my community, in my church? What is it going to look like? What is it going to look like for me to have communion with a triune God and also with God's people? Well, Jesus actually told us what it would look like. He said the bottom line about all of this is love God with all your heart, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. We talked about that last week. That's it. That's the bottom line. That's what it looks like for Christian spirituality. Now, my problem is, when I talk about my life, what it looks like, my problem is that I, I have taught and spoken and written and studied a lot about spiritual life, about spiritual formation. And I realized that I can do all of that in a bubble. That I could do these things in a bubble. I can exist with God by myself. And that's what my problem is. It's about me existing with God. It's about me and God together. It's about I being formed spiritually. It's about I experience, me experiencing abundant life. It's about me experiencing a fulfilling encounter with the scriptures. It's about me having a deeper life. It's about me with a more uh, engagement with the scriptures by myself. And I realized that I could do all of that on a desert island. Robinson Crusoe could do that. But if Jesus is right, and I believe Jesus is right, when he says, really, it's all about love, then I need another person to do that. Love just implies another person. God, you, me, my wife. It just, it's just logical. So if I want to develop Christian spirituality, I cannot do it in a bubble. I cannot do it on a desert island. I have to do it with other people. That's how we do it. I can't demonstrate that I'm being formed in the image of Christ when there's nobody to see it. And I can't be formed in the image of Christ without other people helping me. And so I can complain to God and say, why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you transforming me with your spirit? Transform me with your spirit. And he's saying, I am. I've given you all the gifts you need to do that. It's just that I've given them to other people. And they help me do that. And we help you do that. It has to be with other people. That's how we are formed. That's how it's played out. 
how does this Christianity look like? What does it look like? How does it play out in our lives? Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge that we have a problem, that we have a problem. If I've, if I've hurt my knee and I'm walking to the doctor to have him look at it, and he says, um, how's that limp? And I go, what limp? Well, he can't fix it unless I admit, okay, yeah, I kind of messed up my knee. Can you do something about that? We have to admit this. We have to acknowledge that there is a darkness. We have to admit that to ourselves. We're, we, we lie to ourselves so easily, but we really aren't very good at it because we really do know the truth. We really do know what's going on inside there. So we really have to acknowledge that. And then acknowledge that the many gifts for growth have been given. They've just been given to a lot of the people around us. It seems like to me that God is obsessed with creating relationships. It seems like he is just kind of totally obsessed with that. And he says, yeah, I will meet your need, but I will meet it with other people, giving gifts to other people. That's why you can't keep other people at arm's length. That's why you need them in your life. God is answering prayer. He's answering prayer with others the other people around us. And that takes a huge amount of courage to admit that, that we need other people, that I need you to help form me in the image of Christ, and you need me and each other to help you form, be formed in the image of Christ. It takes a lot of courage to do that. There's no more fooling around about that. When you look at the gospel stories, I know for me, if I've got an issue that I know that I need to deal with, and I want God to take it away, and I hear that a lot. People say, I just, you know, I have this problem with, with shooting off my mouth. I wish God would cure me of that. I, I wish that, you know, I have this problem with pride, and I wish God would take care of that. And if you look at the gospel stories, is there a single gospel story where somebody comes up to Jesus and says, I've got this pride problem. You know, and Jesus puts his hand on him and says, you're healed, it's gone. Does that ever happen in the gospel stories? No. What happens was what I call external forces of evil, like, <clears throat> like demons or sickness or illness. God will come on, Jesus will come on, and he will lay their hands or put mud in their eye or do something, and it's in, in this external force of evil, this leprosy or this illness or this demon, it's gone. But what does he do about the inside stuff? He gathers 12 people around him and he lives with them for three years. That's what he does. When he's transforming us from the inside out, he gathers people around us and he himself works in us and he, and he, he takes us on this long, long pilgrimage of transformation. That's Christian spirituality. And to do that, we have to have this deep-rooted sense of God's love. There's a lot of people who, who confront these dark, these dark shadows through with therapists and counselors and things like that without God's love, and I don't know how they do it. I don't know how I could confront the stuff in me without having this deep sense of God's love first. Only then can we do that. And we say that a lot in church, we say that a lot in this church. I say it a lot in this church, that God loves you. God really loves you. God really, really, really loves you. And there's nothing you can do to stop God from loving you. And that's all nice and good, and it sounds all saccharine and, and, and great. But until we experience it, we won't know it. 
Just because you have a book that says it doesn't mean you're going to know it. You've got to experience it. It's got to deep down. You say it in your head, God loves me, but it's got to get down into the deepest, deepest roots of your soul. And you've got to experience it before, you, before it changes you. And you know what? That's really kind of what, uh, what Paul did. You know, um, in Romans 8, he, uh, he tells people that very thing, that nothing can separate you from God's love. And he says, I know because I've experienced it. It's not something I went to a seminar and learned about. It's not something that I debated with Barnabas and Titus and Timothy about God's love, and then we came to this conclusion and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. No, he experienced it in the deepest part of his soul. How do I know that? Because he wrote Romans 8. He said in Romans 7, he said, you know, the things that I don't do, I end up doing anyway, and the things that I want to do, I don't do. And he goes on and on. He says, I, I, I know what's deep inside. And he said, I, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And he goes, I know because I have tried. I have tried everything in the book to separate myself from the love of God. I've persecuted God's people in God's name. And God hangs in there. Amen. And he says, I've done all of that. I've killed people in God's name. And yet, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. He felt it in his deepest, deepest soul. And that's why he could write, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor present things, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, I think he just about covers it, and all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, what do I have to be afraid of? I've tried it, and God hangs in there, and he loves me anyway. That's Christian spirituality. God's spirit working in us regardless of the past. That's, that's Christian spirituality, and we will look at that a little bit more next week. What I would like to do is like to give this a try tonight. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to walk you through this, and just, just as an experiment. We're not gonna, it's not going to be like 30 minutes or anything, just as an experiment, just to give you an idea. I want you to close your eyes, and in your mind's eye, <clears throat> I want you to look at however you, in your mind's eye, however you see it, maybe the face of Jesus, but look into the face of God and see nothing but unmerited, unstoppable, unasked for love and realize that you are loved by the creator of the universe and nothing can take that away. Now, <clears throat> take a good look at your soul, your deep, deep soul. See all the wonder and all the beauty and the magnificence that means that you are a human being made in the image of God. The laughter, the joy, that piece of pizza 
that cup of coffee, that things that just make it wonderful that you to be a human being, to be on the river. Now look at the wreckage. The skeletons in your closet, everything that's problematic, the hurt, the hurt you've, uh, you've experienced, the hurt you may have caused, the wounds, the abuse, the mistakes, stupid decisions, words spoken, look that in the eye in all of its wonder and in all of its horror of what you've made of yourself. Now, turn back into the face of God again. And now all you see is that undeserved, unasked for, unstoppable love. And I challenge you to respond in any other way other than joy. Not in some theatrical or theoretical way, but because you've got a book, because you've got the Bible, but because you have experienced it. You have discovered that there is nothing you can do to stop God from loving you. And you have experienced it because it's true. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what do you have to be afraid of? We're going to finish this afternoon with communion. And as I mentioned, Christianity is deeply, Christian spirituality is deeply rooted into the soil of this world, this universe, this creation. <clears throat> and it may be comforting to think of yourself as a, a traveler or a stranger in this world and you're just waiting for the, bet, for the next world, but, but that denies one of the most startling truths about Christianity and that is the physicality of Jesus Christ. That he began, he became one of us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is a startling, astonishing statement. So, <clears throat> if you look through the Gospels, Jesus, uh, in all of his teaching, used very common, ordinary things to teach spiritual truths. And he did that with the supper as well. He took the most common elements you can take, a piece of bread and a cup of wine that every peasant would have in their room, in their home, and said, do this in remembrance of me.